Amen. Well, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Yes, this morning we begin our series in the book of Philippians. And if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, please do so. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 is our text for this morning. This is God's Word. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Well, this morning we begin our series through the book of Philippians. We'll be in Philippians in the fall and in the spring of next year. So we'll close it out probably by the end of May. I give you my word on that because we also have a summer series that we're planning for next summer beginning in June. And I've titled this particular sermon as we open up um, the book of Philippians, A Christ-Exalting Letter. A Christ-Exalting Letter. You know, I grew up in Awana. How many of you know about the Awana program? Yeah, I grew up in Awana in the LA area. I was involved in Awana as a kid, was involved in Awana as a youth, and then I was one of the leaders in Awana as a teenager. And sadly, I wasn't redeemed when I was even a leader in Awana. But, you know, the Lord used that particular program in my life. It was very, a very fun program, uh, very much a way to do outreach in the community. And one of the great highlights of the Iwana program for me now as a believer looking back is all of the Scripture that I memorized. Uh, there were so many verses that I remember, just hundreds of verses in the New King James Version in particular that I memorized growing up. And you know, i got to tell you, as I read, read and reread the book of Philippians, the last couple of weeks in particular, but even before that and over the years, I am amazed about how many verses are found in Philippians that I memorized in Awana. How many of you got that impression as you've read through the book? Because I know all of you have been faithful Bereans, and you've already read through the book of Philippians 50 times in preparation for this time, right? Yeah. There are so many verses in the book of Philippians, 104 verses here in Philippians, but so many of them are some of the most often quoted verses in the whole New Testament, really in the whole Bible. Uh, someone has um, commented that. Just think about some of these verses, for instance. Chapter 1 and verse 6. How many of you have ever been discouraged and somebody said this to you in, from Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6? I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. There are mentors, who, a couple of them in particular, who would often encourage me. Uh, in the Christian, in my Christian walk, when I was discouraged about my struggles with sin and my fallenness and all of that, and they would often quote this particular verse, Kempis, God is going to finish the work that He began in you. What about chapter 1, verse 21? One of the definitely most quoted verses in all of Scripture. Chapter 1, verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's a great, great verse. All of life is about Jesus. Amen? Then chapter 2 and verse 3, right? Whenever you get selfish over the years, maybe your mom or your dad, kids, youth, have encouraged you along the lines of making sure, chapter 2, verse 3, that you do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. I've heard that many, many a time because I'm a pretty selfish, self-centered guy. So people have often encouraged me along those lines. Chapter 3 and verse 7, look there. How many of you have not heard this particular passage as Paul is reflecting upon his conversion? Chapter 3, verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, speaking of his credentials, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What a great, great text reminding us of what is most important, right? Chapter 3 and verse 14, look there. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That whole idea of forgetting what lies behind, right? And reaching forward, looking ahead to the time when we're going to see Christ face to face. What a great verse about endurance. And then look at chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing. Or really, literally, stop being anxious. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What a great text. Amen? 
In the midst of all of the anxieties and worries of life, to be reminded of the fact that we need to be people who are entrusting things to God in prayer. Great, often quoted passage. And then, chapter 4, verse 8. The whole idea of guarding our thinking as believers. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Great verse for you and I to be reminded of the fact that we need to be guarding our thinking because as you think, so you will live, right? And then chapter 4 and verse 13, right? This is a really famous one. I can do all things through Christ or through Him who strengthens me. And that doesn't, by the way, mean that you can dunk a basketball like Michael Jordan, all right? That's not what it means. We'll look at that later on. So I don't want to go off on a mini sermon about this, although I did when I did the youth camp, right, brother? I went off on a mini tangent about that. And what it did not mean, that means that you can do everything within the will of God through Him who strengthens you, right? But great verse to encourage us and be reminded of the fact that it is God who is our strength. Well, those are such helpful verses and so um, fruitful for our growth and for our sanctification. And we're going to be looking at so many of those, brethren. But along these lines, along the book of Philippians and this introduction, I want to really focus this morning on three compelling reasons for studying the letter of Philippians. Okay, If you're taking notes and we've put a handout in your bulletin for you to be able to take notes. And this time it's a full sheet so that you're able to take notes here. Three compelling reasons for studying the letter of Philippians. And I pray that these will encourage us and that these will motivate us as we plunge into the depths of this wonderful book. Okay, first of all, write this down. We should study Philippians because of its reverent author. Study Philippians because of its reverent author. Now, before we look at the human names given to us here in verse 1, as always, we need to remember that the ultimate author of, of Scripture is God Himself. Namely, the Holy Spirit who is God. He is the ultimate author of Scripture, right? 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 tells us this, all Scripture is inspired by God. And the idea there is God breathed out. The idea of the senses is expired of God. Pointing to the reality that God is the origin. God is the source of Scripture. Scripture comes from God Himself. And then 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20 and 21 says this, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. In other words, it's not of man. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, that is, Scripture doesn't originate with man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The idea there is that like the sails of a ship are moved by the, by the powerful compelling winds. So men, as chosen by God, were moved and directed by the Almighty, all-wise Holy Spirit to pen the exact words that you have in your Bible. God superintended, in other words, these men, right, as they wrote Scripture, given their unique personalities, their unique circumstances, their unique experiences, He so superintended them to pen the exact words in whole and in part that He wanted them to write. And so whenever we speak of authorship, we must never forget that the ultimate author of Scripture, first and foremost, is God Himself, This is why when we open up the Bible, we refer to it as the Word of God because that's what it is. Ultimately, it originates in Him. And yet, God so chose to use spokesmen, especially chosen by Him, brethren, to put Holy Scripture in writing. And so verse 1 gives us the reverent human author. Notice, Paul and Timothy. There has been very little debate in the history of the church as to who wrote the book of Philippians. It is Paul who is the author of Philippians. In fact, he opens the letter by mentioning himself, yes? And then as you look at the context, as you look at the opening few verses, there is also this repeated um, I, I, I that appears in the opening chapter. It's Paul who wrote it. The letter is also intensely personal to Paul. The style of writing here in Philippians is very similar to his other letters that he wrote as well. And some, however, have looked at this 
first opening verse, and when they see both names there, Paul and Timothy, they think that it was both Paul and Timothy who penned Philippians. But Paul is merely mentioning Timothy because as we're going to look at this later on, Timothy happens to be with Paul when he's penning the letter of Philippians. We'll see this later on in chapter 2, verses 19 through 24. One other key observation from the text, which also points to Paul as the lone author, right, is that again, as the body of the letter begins, Paul keeps referencing himself in the, in the first person. I, I, I. This indicates that Paul alone is the author, and Timothy is merely with him when he writes this particular letter. And so the human author, who is full of reverence for God, is the Apostle Paul, whom you know. Now we're going to get extensively into the life of the Apostle Paul when we get to chapter 3. Suffice it to say, Paul was one of the preeminent Pharisees of his day prior to coming to know Jesus Christ. He studied under the prominent teacher, maybe the preeminent teacher of the day, a guy by the name of Gamaliel who was famous at the time. And prior to Christ, this man, Saul, previously named Saul, was a man who sincerely felt that he was um, being simply operating out of zeal for God. He really genuinely felt that way. And then in Acts, everything changed for Paul. In Acts chapter 9, we read about Paul on the road to Damascus. And Paul had a collision with the risen Jesus. And brethren, he was never the same man again, as it should happen for us when we are converted. Paul was dramatically changed. It was there that he saw how his zeal had been misguided and misplaced. And Jesus there commissioned Paul, previous Saul, to be his special spokesman to the Gentiles. And boy, did God use this man amazingly in a remarkable way. Paul went on to pen 13 New Testament letters, preached Christ to thousands of people all over the place, found and plant churches, trained leaders, equipped people for ministry. He was a great apologist, a great defender of the faith. On and on the list goes as to Paul's accomplishments. And we'll see in chapter 3, post-Jesus, how he felt about those credentials and those accomplishments. But even with all of these God-honoring accomplishments, we see this man full of reverence for God and how he identifies himself and Timothy in verse 1. Look there. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. I love this. I love this. Even with all of his accomplishments, even with all of his credentials that he could boast in, how did Paul view himself, brethren? He saw himself as a bondservant, doulos, a word which, a word which can be translated slave or servant. And folks in those days understood what a slave or servant was. It referred to someone of lowly service, the lowliest of the low. These were some of the most humble people who dedicated their lives to ministering and serving their master with a little m. Now for Paul to be a servant of Christ Jesus was an utter privilege. It wasn't something that he did out of a heart of uh, an attitude of drudgery in a duty-driven manner. Paul delighted in the fact that he was a servant of Christ Jesus. Far from being a drudgerous calling, it was a high calling for Paul to be this particular role in the life of in his Christian walk. They were servants of the most benevolent master. You see that even with all of his accomplishments and all of his credentials, here is a man who had a great sense of humble reverence for Christ. That's why he is the reverent author. He's full of reverential awe for his Savior. And it's why I believe that there's such a great emphasis in the book of Philippians on this attitude of virtue of humility. For example, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1-4, through 4, Paul will exhort these believers and us to consider others as more important than themselves. And the heart attitude that drives this kind of, of others' focus and others' orientedness is this attitude of humility in the heart. Well, Paul exemplified that. And even then, all the more in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, he says, the ultimate example of humility is the Lord Jesus Christ. Later on in chapter 2, he's going to talk about Timothy and Epaphroditus who are also presented as humble servants who gave themselves for the work of the ministry. 
Again, in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Jesus is the ultimate example of humility and that He came into the world, lived a perfect life, became a man, died on the cross in order to humbly serve mankind. And then, later on, we read about the fact that Paul is in jail. Or we recognize in the book of Philippians that he is in jail. And yet in the midst of that, his humble response is, I want to see Christ exalted. Humility is huge here in the book of Philippians. Huge. Now question, when did Paul, the humble reverent author, write the letter of Philippians? Well, most believe that he wrote this letter during what is called his first Roman imprisonment. This first Roman imprisonment is recorded for us in Acts chapter 28 and happened sometime between A.D. 60 and A.D. 62. Where did Paul write Philippians from? Well, Paul was in prison. He mentions this multiple times. Chapter 1, verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 13. Chapter 1, verse 14. There's the mention in chapter 1, verse 13 of the Praetorian Guard, which meant that he was most likely in the capital of Rome. And he was in jail. He was in prison. And so Philippians is one of what we call four prison epistles written by the Apostle Paul. Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians. Paul was in prison, most likely in the capital of Rome. And Paul at the time was awaiting the outcome of his trial, not knowing whether he would live or whether he would be executed by the Romans. And while on house arrest or while in prison, Paul had a certain level of freedom. We get that from the letters that he writes. He had a certain degree of freedom. He could have visitors. He could write, uh, obviously, letters like the book of Philippians under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He even was able to share his faith in chapter 1, verse 13. And then later in chapter 4 and verse 22, uh, he says, hey, um, Philippians, some of the soldiers who came to know Jesus say hi, right? Those of Caesar's household. And so Paul could actually share his faith. He was imprisoned on house arrest, but he had a certain level or degree of, of freedom. But as we open this letter, brethren, I guess my opening point here is along these lines. I want us to remember and to reflect on the humility of this man, on the reverential awe that this man had for Christ his Lord. Again, he can certainly flaunt his credentials, but instead, what does he do? He shows his humble reverence and respect for Christ by saying, I am merely a bondservant, I am merely a slave, a servant. We'll eventually get to Philippians chapter 3, if you will turn there with me. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. But again, notice what he says there. Chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. The context there, obviously, is he's rehearsed his credentials in verses 3 through 6. And he says, you know what, as I look back and I think about all of those things that at one time I could have boasted in, in the light of the fact that I now know Jesus, all of those things are nothing in comparison to Christ, to having met Him. But how does Paul feel 30 years later? He's writing this particular book, note, 30 years or so, approximately after his conversion of Acts chapter 9. How does Paul feel 30 days later, or 30 years later, after his conversion? Look at verse 8. More than that, I count present tense. I count in the present all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Again, brethren, verse 8 is some 30 years after Paul came to know Christ that he writes that. And why is that significant? Because Paul has grown in humility and in reverence for God in 30 years of walking with the Lord. Mark it. For the typical person, it tends to be the opposite, yes? So oftentimes, the more that we walk with God and the longer that we've been in Christ, we go the opposite direction way too much. Paul viewed his past in view of Jesus as nothing in comparison to knowing Christ. And now in the present time, as he's in prison and his circumstances are difficult from a human perspective, he still has this high degree of reverence and awe for Christ in light of the fact that Jesus saved him from his sins. I find that remarkable. What humility. 
What reverence, what awe for Christ. Again, for some, the longer that they walk with Christ, the more proud and obstinate that they can become. For so many people, the more that they grow in knowledge and in theology, the less teachable that they can become if not careful. You know the old saying, right? You can't teach an old dog new tricks. You know that saying? What do we mean by that? That the older you are, the more reluctant you might be to change. Don't teach me anything that I already know. I already know those things, right? I've been around the block for a long time. Well, the Apostle Paul had been around for a long time, and guess what? He is utterly teachable and has a sense of reverential awe and humility before Christ. Amen? This is such a, an example for us, brethren. We as Christians should actually be the same. The longer that we walk with Christ, the more humble, the more teachable, the more full of reverence and respect that we should be toward God. Hear me. Don't ever use your age, brother, sister, as an excuse to no longer be teachable. To no longer be willing to change when the Word of God is preached. To no longer grow in reverential awe towards the Lord. Paul was the opposite. He was actually growing in reverence, growing in humility before God some 30 years later as he's writing this particular letter. And so first of all, we should study Philippians because of its reverent author. Secondly, write this down. We should study Philippians because of its relatable audience. We should study Philippians because of its relatable audience. One of the precious things about Holy Scripture is that though it was written at various times in the past, it is full of unchanging, timeless truths. And we can relate to the people to whom Paul was writing here. They are not too different from us. Look at verse 1. He writes this letter, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Saints literally means holy ones, set apart ones. He says, I'm writing to the saints who are at Philippi in Christ Jesus. This is not saints, by the way, in the Roman Catholic sense, right? In the sense that we need to worship some human image or, or uh, commit the sin of idolatry, right? Raise human beings to the level of a God with a little g. That's not what this is talking about. He's writing to the holy ones. And in the Bible, holy ones, saints, refers to those who have been set apart by God's grace from sin unto Christ. It's a common way of referring to broken sinners who've been saved by the grace of God, who no longer belong to the domain of darkness, who have now been transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are set apart or holy. Brethren, this is what you and I are, by the way. This is why we can identify with a letter like this, yes? He's writing to believers. Guess what? They are saints, holy ones. This is what you and I are in Christ. And just as God is referred to as the, the Holy One, His people are referred to as Holy Ones because we are called to live righteously and godly in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. We are no longer called to live as we used to live anymore. We are positionally now Holy Ones. And we're called to live out who we are in Christ. By the way, notice that terminology there in verse 1. In Christ Jesus. You see that? That is very significant there. In Christ refers to our union with Christ. That we are in Christ and He is in us speaks to the, the connectedness that we have with Christ. It speaks to the, the intimate and vital relationship and connection that we have with Jesus that is indestructible and nothing on this earth can ever break that. This is our union with Christ. We are in Christ Jesus, set apart ones, holy ones. By the way, if you're not in Christ Jesus, then you are in darkness. If you are not in Christ Jesus, then you are an enemy of God, not a child of God. You are not a holy one. You are one who is of Satan. You are one who dwells in the kingdom of darkness. If you are not in Christ, this is, by the way, whether you're actively vocal about your hostility against God or if you're indifferent to God altogether, living a life independent of God and His people, not living out your, the purpose for which you were created, that is to glorify God and enjoy Him now and forevermore. Either way, you're an enemy of God and subject to His divine judgment one day. 
But thanks be to God that there's always hope. Amen? There's the beautiful reality that you don't need to remain in that state if you are outside of Christ. You can be in Christ today. Turn from your sins and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is always hope at the foot of the cross. For those who repent of their sins and place their confident trust in Christ, there is reconciliation through Jesus Christ. You can be in Christ. Now notice, Paul is writing specifically to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Notice that? Both the sheep and the shepherds and those who facilitate service are mentioned here at the church in Philippi. And it's significant here that these are mentioned overseers and deacons. It's significant because from the very early days of the Christian church, as we know it, there were already structures of leadership. Overseers are mentioned here, which is synonymous with the terms of elder and pastor. Elders, pastors, overseers, right? Were identified and affirmed and commissioned to lead. And their focus, as the New Testament unfolds for us, is the spiritual care of the church. Elders oversee the flock and, and focus on the spiritual needs of the flock. They feed the flock. They lead the flock. They protect the flock, right? And the doctrine of the church because we are not protecting the teaching of the church and you're eating unhealthy doctrine, unhealthy teaching, then you won't be healthy spiritually yourself. And so elders feed, lead, and protect the sheep. They equip the church for the work of the ministry. And deacons are also mentioned here. Their responsibility as the New Testament unfolds for us, is primarily the, the physical care of the church. Deacons, think of them this way, are service ministry facilitators. They are service ministry facilitators by way of example and by way of enlisting others to serve. They are service ministry facilitators by way of example. They model this for the people of God in the context of the church. And they enlist others to serve. They recruit others to make sure that they are using their gifts and their abilities and their experiences as well to serve in the church. Deacons were a unifying force in the early church. They assisted the elders by way of focusing on the physical needs of the church so that the elders then, overseers, pastors, could focus on prayer and the ministry of the Word and equipping the saints for the work of service as Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1-16 through 16 tells us. And so you have the leadership included here. But note also that he writes to the saints in the city of Philippi, doesn't he? Philippi. Philippi was about 1,200 miles or so from the capital of Rome. At the time, traveling from Philippi to Rome could take you approximately 40 days. Remember, no planes, right? No automobiles. So it wasn't a quick trip there. 40 plus days to get from Philippi to Rome. And Philip, historically, or Philippi, received its name from Philip II of Macedon. He was the father of the infamous, anybody know? Alexander the Great, right? Alexander the Great. Philip had conquered this region in the 4th century B.C., but the city really wasn't put on the map until about 42 B.C. when the armies of, of the famous Antony and Octavian defeated those of Brutus and Cassius in what was known as the Battle of Philippi. This battle was really would mark the end of what was known as the Roman Republic and ushered in the Roman Empire. And so after this battle, Philippi really became a, a known place, a Roman colony. A Roman colony. This meant that it had a certain degree of autonomy from the provincial government of Rome, and had the same rights granted to cities in Italy. It meant also that the city was exempt from some of the taxes and could grant even Roman citizenship to its residents. So it was a strategic city located right between the past, between Asia and Europe. It was a strategic trading route since it was the main land route between Rome and the East. Very strategic location. Those are some of the general historical facts about Philippi. The church in Philippi was founded by Paul in Acts 16 during his second missionary journey. This is that's some 10 years before Paul writes the letter of Philippians. It's been a decade since he founded this particular church in Acts 16 during his second missionary journey. Significantly, it was the first church that was planted in Europe. 
And that was not initially the plan. The plan initially was for Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy to, to go elsewhere. You can read about this in Acts 16. But we're told that, that Paul had a vision from God where a man from Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so being prompted by that, the Apostle Paul was obedient and they headed to Macedonia as they were directed by the divine providence of God. They arrived to Philippi, and there, brethren, a beautiful, wonderful church was birthed. And it all began in Acts 16, where it says that a Gentile woman named Lydia was there by the river. And Paul shared the gospel with this woman. She responded to the gospel. She was the first convert. And it was in the house of this little lady, as her family also responded to the gospel call and came to know Christ, it was in the home of this little lady where that church began to meet as other people came to know Christ as well. From very early on, it was very evident that God was mightily at work in and through this little church made up of mostly Gentile Christians. For example, in Acts 16, we're told that about this miraculous deliverance of a young girl who had been under the power, indwelling power of this evil spirit of demonic activity. And this led Paul and Silas after this, this miraculous deliverance to be incarcerated in Philippi, after having been brutally beaten with rods and suffering for their faith and for what they had done, this miracle that they had performed upon this girl. Yet another miracle took place while they're in that Philippian jail. Paul and Silas are in jail singing hymns, praising God, all with the prisoners listening. And then remember what happened? God sends this earthquake and everyone's chains are unfastened and they're freed. And the Philippian jailer who was there, seeing the fact that, you know, that people had been freed, decides that he's going to kill himself because the, the penalty for allowing prisoners to escape is execution at the time. And Paul stops him, intervenes, tells him not to kill himself for they are still there. And the Philippian jailer, after Paul shares the gospel with him, gets saved if you can imagine that. So there was miracle after miracle. Those were some of the most notable events which took place in the life of this little church. And so this formerly insignificant little city, brethren, Market, became the place where the first Christian church in Europe was born. It was small, but had tremendous impact. In fact, on multiple occasions, this church had contributed to Paul's gospel ministry, monetarily and generously given offerings for, for other churches. You can read about some of this in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and, and 9. They were a very generous people. In fact, in Philippians 4, he's going to commend them for their giving spirit again to his ministry and to the ministry of the gospel. But suffice it to say, listen, we can relate with so much of what transpired in the life of this church. In the birth of this church, people come in to know Christ. This church being birthed and growing as God, by His miraculous grace, allowed people to be awakened from spiritual death. We can relate to this, brethren. You know, this is why we should praise God for the history and preservation of EBC, of this church as well. Amen? Think about it. Similar to the church in Philippi, God used people to share Christ with others. One person at a time, this particular church a few decades ago was born as well. And then it continued to grow. And over the years, trial after trial, yes, and opposition and persecution to some extent or another perhaps in this region has taken place, but God has always allowed His church to be preserved and to be protected. Amen? Even through the recent trials of this church, we should always, brethren, Praise God for His divine providence. As we think about the church at Philippi, we can relate to this. We can relate with the audience and the way that God birthed that church at Philippi and preserved that church and protected that church because that is the story of EBC as well. Amen? Thirdly, thirdly, Philippians is a letter we should study because of its reverent author, because of its relatable audience. Thirdly, we should study Philippians because of its relevant applicability because of its relevant applicability. Listen, the contents of this letter, as you read it, as you meditate upon it, are so relevant and applicable to us as well, brethren. In fact, even as you look at the greeting in verse 2, we see this. Paul greets them in verse 2 saying, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus 
Christ. All that Paul says, even in that greeting, and don't ever, ever, ever read past the opening one or two verses where there's a greeting uh, included in, in these letters and basically just pass over it and not think about the profundity and the depth of those words. Amen? Grace and peace. Notice, grace is the ground of our salvation. God has granted all Christians grace, which is a gift, unmerited, undeserved. Remember what the one, my one fellow brother pastor, how he's defined grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. I love that. I love that definition. God's riches at Christ's expense. We are the recipients of grace, like the church at Philippi. And then peace. Peace then is the result of God's grace. Being lavished upon us grace and peace, he says. We've entered into that peace brethren, with God by faith and the redemptive work of, of Christ. And notice, who is the source of those blessings? It's from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because of God and because of His divine intervention that we have peace, that we are able to actually um, look forward to a time when we will eternally be secure in the presence of God and see Christ for who He is. And so don't ever overlook the powerful opening greetings these are packed with significance, right? Now, as we consider the relevant applicability of this, of this letter, one further super important question I think needs to be answered. Why did Paul write the letter of Philippians? Why did he write the letter of Philippians? I think, first of all, he wrote it for pastoral reasons. He wrote it for pastoral reasons. There were shepherding matters and shepherding concerns that this faithful shepherd pastor had for these brethren whom he loved very much. At the top of the list, I want you to note this, it was the beginning signs of disunity amongst them. Disunity. His pastoral concern is that they are beginning to operate in a, in a not unified manner. And he calls this out later on in chapter 4, verse 1. Note there, chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. How would you like for your names to be called out, right? In a letter like this. That is the explicit uh, uh, Paul explicitly calling out the particular pastoral concern that he has, the main pastoral concern that he has. But I find it interesting that Paul doesn't open the letter with chapter 4 and verse 2. He opens the letter with affirmation. He opens the letter by expressing gratitude. He opens the letter, brethren, by elevating their sights on someone greater. He elevates their sights on, on the fact that they need to have a Christ-exalting perspective. And that really is the issue, isn't it? Whenever there's disunity in the church, in some capacity or another, brethren, it comes back to a God problem that we have. And Paul opens the letter by emphasizing the fact that you've lost sight of the gospel. Implicitly, that's what he's talking about. I, you have been with me from the beginning. I remember our partnership. You need to focus on that partnership, and that is going to inform the way that you relate to others in the church. Whenever there's this unity market, unforgiveness, a lack of reconciliation, the heart issue is we've lost sight of Christ to some extent or another and why we are here as a church. Paul wants to deal with this unity. And he says, to the extent that you focus on exalting Christ, exalting our Lord, you will know how to deal with those interrelational problems that you have. He also writes as a protective shepherd, not only to deal with disunity by way of his pastoral concern, but also to encourage them. He wants to encourage these Philippians in the face of opposition and to expose false teachers, right? There's always going to be the case that there are going to be those who oppose the gospel, and that was the case even here in Philippi. So in chapter 1, verse 27, note, he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, Philippians, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, 
Those are the detractors, those who are attacking the gospel, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. You know what he's saying? He's saying as those opposers, as those detractors, as the enemies of the cross of Christ are watching the way that you guys operate in unity for the greater progress of the gospel, they will be put to shame. They will watch your testimony. You know that old song, they will know they are, we are Christians by our what? By our love. There's a lot of truth to that. As long as you define love biblically, yes. Biblically, not devoid of the truth or detached from the truth. There's truth to that. In the Christian church, more than in any other place, we need to model, brethren, genuine, authentic love for one another because of the Gospel having done its work in our hearts and lives. And in doing that, we are going to be a testimony to the world around us. That's what Paul is saying. Make sure that the one thing that I hear is that you guys are operating in a unified manner because that's going to become a powerful testimony to those who oppose the gospel. Do it. Chapter 3, verse 2. Notice, he also says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Now, explicitly, he's talking there about false teachers. And so Paul wants to encourage them to make sure that they are operating in unity so that they would be a testimony to those who oppose the gospel, but also he wants them to be those who are exposing false teachers. Second, I think he wrote it for personal reasons. Not only for pastoral reasons, but also for personal reasons. Remember, he's in jail, and these people are concerned, as they would be. This little church is concerned about the Apostle Paul. What's going on with the Apostle Paul? We're going to send Epaphroditus, one of our own, to go check on Paul. And Epaphroditus goes on this long trip to visit Paul in Rome while he is on house arrest. And on the way, Epaphroditus gets sick and almost dies. And so Paul writes to these people to basically talk to them not only about himself, but even about Epaphroditus and commending Epaphroditus. Paul writes them to update them about how he is doing and in chapter 1 verses 12 and following he says you know i'm actually doing quite well folks right i'm actually in prison on house arrest proclaiming christ and at the end of the day here's what matters to me most he says even while in prison even on house arrest may christ be proclaimed he says i want you to know that he updates them about that he also writes to commend timothy to them Commend Timothy, his child in the faith. This is in chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. Most likely, the church at Philippi didn't know Timothy very well, and so Paul wants to commend Timothy uh, to them and make sure that they give him a warm welcome when he goes and visits them if he gets to Philippi. He writes also to update them, as I said, about Epaphroditus and his illness, chapter 2, verses 25 through 30. And he writes also to express his intention to visit them if he's released. There's a real sense of anticipation that Paul has here as he writes Philippians that he's actually going to get out of jail and he's going to be able to visit them. That's in chapter 2 and verse 24. And then he writes them to thank them as well for their financial gift. They had done this before many, many times. And so he basically expresses gratitude to them for the fact that they have helped them yet again because of their Christ-exalting perspective, because of the fact that he knows that they have a view on the progress of the gospel, a priority of the progress of the gospel. Now, as we look at all of these reasons for Paul penning this wonderful letter, we're going to see its relevance, brethren, and its applicability for our lives in more ways than one personally and collectively. I'm so excited to be able to get into this book in the context one last question. Is there a central theme in the book of Philippians? Is there a central theme? And I believe that there is. You know, some people have said that joy is the central theme of Philippians. And for sure, there are so many mentions of joy and rejoicing and that whole word group that, yes, that could be a, a huge theme for sure, joy. Some have mentioned the theme of service. Right? Because Paul is a servant, Timothy is a servant, Epaphroditus is a servant. He keeps mentioning these servants and even how the church at Philippi has served very well. So service could be a theme. Some have mentioned suffering well in the midst of trials and opposition. Suffering well, and what does that look like? That could be the main theme in Philippians. Some have mentioned even humility or love as the central theme. 
Because those themes keep coming up again and again, explicitly or implicitly. All of those would be wonderful themes to emphasize, and they are emphasized in the context of Philippians. But I believe that there is one theme that really is the all-encompassing theme of this letter. I believe that unity in the gospel is the key theme in the letter of Philippians. Unity in the gospel and what that looks like individually and collectively as a, as a church. In fact, joy is the byproduct and result of us walking in gospel unity, yes? You cannot have joy without walking in gospel unity. Because the only reason why you have joy is not because you're focused on your difficult circumstances, which in a broken, fallen world are common to all of us. You can have joy regardless of circumstance as you focus on the greater exaltation of Christ on this earth. Yes, I've been there many a time. Joy is the byproduct or the result of us walking in gospel unity. You can't have joy without walking in gospel unity. And so I believe that unity in the gospel is central and evident throughout the letter. Just write these passages down. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, Paul is full of gratitude, commends these Philippians. Why? Because they are the perfect church? Because there are no issues? He highlights it explicitly in chapter 4 and verse 3. No, Paul uh, is commending them and expressing gratitude to them. Why? Because of the gospel of Christ. That's why. Because of the progress of the gospel in their lives. Chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, as Paul talks about his own circumstances and the potential that he could die, Paul is gratefully optimistic about his personal circumstances. Why? Because sitting in jail is what Paul would prefer? No, because of the gospel of Christ. Later on in chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, we read those verses. Paul exhorts them in light of the gospel to walk in unity with one another. In the face of opposition, they are to do this. In the face of their suffering, they are to do this. They are to follow his example of what? Walking in the gospel of Christ. And that's got implications for the way that they treat one another. They walk in unity with one another. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Paul tells them that if they are to walk in unity, they will have to arm themselves with Christ-like humility, humility as exemplified where? In the gospel of Christ. This book is all about the gospel and the implications of the gospel, us walking in gospel unity as we focus on making much of Jesus rather than focusing on ourselves. Amen? Amen. Unity in the gospel is key. The chief theme of the book of Philippians. And may I comment something about this unity? One final note on this theme of gospel unity in the, gospel of Philippi, in the book of Philippians, rather. We will see, brethren, as we walk through this book and this letter and these contents, that unity is not just the presence of peaceful relationships. You know, we often just think about that aspect of unity, right? We think about unity, we, think about, we just got to get along with one another. We got to make sure that we are practicing harmonious relationships with one another. That right there is unity. And that is a major aspect of unity. But when you look at the book of Philippians, there's another aspect of unity that we don't often think about. Unity is not just the presence of peaceful relationships, but unity is also the presence of the pursuit of common purpose together. Did you mark that? Unity is also the presence of the pursuit of common purpose. Where the people of God and the church of God is moving in one direction together to fulfill one common purpose, brethren, and that common purpose is the greater progress of the gospel of Christ. That is our greater purpose. And the more that you and I focus on that mission per our summer series, the more that that will inform and shape and instruct and even correct the way that we treat one another in the context of the church. It will also inform the way that we look at the world around us. Not as a, as, as, a, as a burden to be in this world, but actually as an opportunity that God actually has us here to reach people for Jesus. Amen? To preach Christ to people because He is the only hope. You see that? 
Unity is not just the presence of peaceful relationships. It's also the presence of the pursuit of common purpose. This is why he says in chapter 1, verse 27, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, that is genuinely from the heart, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, he says. I want to see you guys moving in one direction together. Whether God allows me to get out of this house prison cell or not, I want to know that the Philippian church is moving in one direction together, exalting Christ, making much of Jesus in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. As Paul is doing that in prison himself, yes? He's preaching even to soldiers who are coming to know Christ at the very center of the capital of the Roman Empire. In Rome, he's doing this. He says, you guys need to do the same thing, Philippians. Strive together for the faith of the gospel. And so as we work through the content of this letter, we'll see this. We'll see that their founding pastor, the Apostle Paul, is calling them to walk in gospel unity and strive for a Christ-exalting perspective, brethren. This is what we need to be praying for our own church as well. We need to be praying for this, for ourselves individually, collectively, as families, that you and I might rise above the wicked and perverse generation that we are living in, brethren, and that we might live in the light of eternity. Yes? Exalting Jesus, making much of Him, moving in one direction together. So do you see then the relevant applicability of this letter to us as a church and as individuals? This is a unifying, Christ-exalting letter, and I'm super excited, brethren, to get into the contents of this letter together for two whole semesters. Amen? Let's be praying together that God would allow this letter to bear much fruit in our hearts. All right, let's pray together. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that we have an opportunity to plunge into the depths of this wonderful letter. Lord, humble us, unify us as we work through this letter, draw us closer to yourself and closer to one another. Help us to be people who have our sights set on mission, the Great Commission, that Lord, even as we talk through how we relate to one another, as this letter will challenge us, that we might always remember that there's a greater picture. And the greater picture, the greater purpose is that crutch of, Lord, help us to be about that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.